Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle and you're listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 174, Noble Lies and Philosophic Silence, Hypatia, Synesius, and the New Esotericism in the Late 4th Century. Many questions remain after our last episode on the life and death of Hypatia of Alexandria. Here are a couple which I find relevant to the history of Western esotericism and which we're going to reflect on in this episode, even though we're not going to find solid answers for anything. If the Bishop Theophilus was such a pagan-hating guy, why was Hypatia apparently able quietly to run her philosophical school right through his tempestuous reign? Is the emphasis to be put on the quietly? Did she just keep her head down and do her thing in private? Well, she was pretty famous. She was hanging out with the Beaumont of Alexandria. She knew the governor of Egypt. So she wasn't living some cloistered, retired life. But maybe she kept certain doctrines quiet. So that her mathematical teaching was all public. And that's what she's mostly remembered for. But she had an inner circle for whom were reserved the deeper mysteries of philosophy. Including, one assumes, some polytheist religious material, among other goodies. We have some reason to think that latter is the case, but we can't really prove it. Uh, We'll return to that in this episode. But this question of, you know, was there a kind of esoteric Hypatia raises some larger questions, such as, assuming Hypatia was exercising some kind of esoteric discretion with her inner teachings, she was, of course, doing nothing new. That's the whole point of esotericism on the social level. You have an inner circle, the initiates, and an outer mob of the profane. But what if Hypatia's death points us towards something new in the late antique culture of the esoteric, namely esotericism to avoid persecution, esotericism to to stay safe? We're going to talk a lot about that in this episode as well. Again, we can't really prove that that's the story with Hypatia, but the life and death of Hypatia certainly provide us with a a good mm, sort of topos, a good set of circumstances to bring up this very important issue and uh, discuss it a little bit. So, last time we promised to have a look at the esoteric doctrines of Hypatia. Now, what might these have been? As far as her published works tell us, she was a teacher of mathematics. But we have enough evidence, especially in the testimony of her student, Synesius, to make us think that Hypatia must have had some other stuff on her mind than conic sections. What are we to make of Synesius's citations of the Chaldean oracles, which he seemingly knows a lot better than he knows the Christian scriptures, which seems odd for a bishop? What are we to make of his references to esotericism of various sorts, in both his life and in the school culture of Hypatia, his beloved initiator into the mysteries of philosophy, as he puts it. Well, before we narrow our inquiry and try to answer these questions, and uh, spoiler alert, there isn't a responsible way to answer these questions. It's all going to be exploring suggestive possibilities in this episode. Before we do that, due diligence prompts us to take in a range of scholarly views that are out there. Every responsible discussion of Hypatia's thought begins with a disclaimer that our evidence sucks. 
Uh, We discussed that suckiness in the last episode, so you know what we're on about, gentle listener. So it shouldn't surprise us that there are radically different readings of Hypatia, like what kind of philosopher was she out there? I want to look at three main views here, all of which can be argued for and have been argued for along quite responsible lines. We'll give an example of each type of view, but these examples are just the tips of big argumentative scholarly icebergs. The first position, uh, long out of fashion, but which seems to be gaining in popularity in recent decades, is what we might call the minimalist position. Our really solid evidence for Hypatia says that she was a mathematician interested in the exact sciences and astronomy and stuff like that, and that's actually what she was. No esoteric teachings here. Alain Bernard, if I'm pronouncing his name right, maybe he's called Alain Bernard, I don't know, in the 2010 Cambridge History of Philosophy in Late Antiquity, says the following quote, It's often taken for granted that Hypatia was a Platonist, but this presupposition relies on such disputable evidence that it is, in fact, no more than one possibility among many others. We shall see in particular that a more plausible one is that she basically was a Ptolemist i.e. a dedicated follower of this original and composite philosophy elaborated by Ptolemy in the 2nd century CE. As an aside, listeners to the podcast will remember Ptolemy, author of uh, very influential synthetic works on Hellenistic astronomy and Hellenistic astrology. Back to our quote, One major reason for thinking so is that this philosophy had probably been already followed by her father Theon of Alexandria in the mid-4th century CE, as well as by his predecessor, Pappus of Alexandria, at the beginning of the same century. Hypatia, Theon, and Pappus obviously shared a deep interest in the study of Ptolemy's Almagest, the two last having left influential commentaries on it. It is highly plausible, though not entirely provable, as we shall see, that this interest came along with the cultivation of the same kind of Ptolemism, derived from the philosophical commitment advocated by Ptolemy himself in his introduction to the Amagest, which gives a central role to the study of mathematics. End of quote. Okay, so here we have a Ptolemist uh, school of philosophy at Alexandria. We can bring John Rist's view from a 1965 article that Hypatia was, quote, not an exponent of the philosophy of either Plotinus or Iamblichus, end of quote, to the table here. Another example, she's, she's a mathematician, she's not a Platonist. Ojula has argued similarly, Hypatia was into the exact sciences, and that was her thing. Forget the metaphysics. Okay, that's our minimalist position. Now, I, at this point, I hear you object, gentle listener, saying, but one of the few characterizations of Hypatia we have from antiquity is from Socrates Scholasticus, who says that Hypatia came to head the school of Plato derived from Plotinus. That seems, well, kind of like a smoking gun of sorts. You are right, gentle listener. You could even add the fact that Damascius deigns to discuss Hypatia at all as a philosopher, which implies that she was involved in some kind of Platonism, since for Damascius there kind of is no philosophy except various takes on Platonism. So, this uncomfortable evidence has led many scholars to read Hypatia as, roughly speaking, a Plotinian or Porphyrian Platonist of some kind or other. And the evidence from Synesius, her student, can certainly be read in this way. 
This is, I think, what we might call the majority view in scholarship over the last century. Uh, there were, roughly speaking, two main strands of Platonism in late antiquity after Iamblichus, the Platinian stroke Porphyrian lineage, which kind of de-emphasized ritual and emphasized the cultivation of the virtues, philosophic knowledge, and finally, meditative contemplation of higher realities so as to make the ascent to the noetic world, and with a bit of luck and the blessing of gods, maybe to the one stroke good itself. Then we have the Iamblichian lineage. And in our discussions of Eunapius's narrative, we've been looking at this lineage in quite a bit of detail up to the time of Julian and the Julianic aftermath when Maximus of Ephesus met his grisly end. This school of thought had its own metaphysical teachings, which we can say are elaborations of the foundation established by Plotinus, but they emphasized ritual in a big way. Various types of private oracular uh, response, divination, statue animation, and presumably going on behind the scenes or off the page, rituals intended to draw the noetic powers down into the soul of the practitioner, resulting in theosis, divinization. Now, we have pretty good reasons to think that Olympus, whom we met last time, the polytheist firebrand who caused all that trouble in Alexandria and ended up sort of... <laughs> leading the uh, resistance to the siege of the Serapeum, he was this kind of Platonist philosopher. He was roughly some kind of Iamblichian, we think. The Athenian Academy, founded or refounded by Plutarch of Athens in the mid-4th century, was, after the period we're talking about today, home to a serious final flowering of this sort of Platonism, the Iamblichian stuff. And we shall be discussing those philosophers of Athens in upcoming episodes. Anyway, this basic dichotomy of Platinian, Porphyrian versus Iamblichian, it's not exactly the invention of modern scholarship, because we actually sort of find it laid out more or less this way in a, a remark of Damascius, the final scholar of the Athenian Academy. Anyway, this dichotomy has been a bit overused in scholarship, in my view, such that all late antique Platonists are sometimes pigeonholed as either Plotinian, contemplative, or Iamblichian, theurgic. Recent scholarship, much of which has been discussed in this podcast, has done a lot to soften the seeming dichotomy. Plotinus was more theurgic than people think, and uh, Iamblichus was sort of more contemplative and deeply Plotinian in his thought than is often uh, said, despite all the triads and angels and rituals. I mean, in my view... Heck, Apuleius was pretty theurgic already in the second century. That's my reading of the Isis mysteries in the Metamorphoses. Not everyone will agree with me, but anyway, the dichotomy is too dichotomous to have reflected uh, reality on the ground. It needn't be the case that there were two and only two main groupings of Platonists in the late empire. Hypatia might easily have been a one-off, right? Theon and she might have been doing their own little a thing there in Alexandria under the influence of philosophical authors whose works no longer even survive. Watts's take on Hypatia from his book City and School we will take as a representative example of the Porphyrian Hypatia thesis. Watts argues that Theon might have kept the Iamblichian influence out of his curriculum with a certain amount of pride. Here, Watts is echoing the idea put forth by Zielska in her biography of Hypatia. The idea that we're looking at a sort of Porphyrian teaching. 
Watts goes on to say, quote, Hypatia too seems to have had little interest in the teaching of Iamblichus. Socrates Scholasticus suggests that she did not see Iamblichus as an intellectual ancestor. Writing a century after her death, Damascius makes an even more emphatic statement to this effect. He establishes a clear contrast between the teaching of Hypatia and the Iamblichan system. End of quote. Now, Watts is fully enthralled to the uh, dichotomy model here. So you're either Iamblichian or you're Porphyrian. Which one is she? And he's also interpreting the evidence here quite dramatically. So what Socrates of Constantinople actually said was, Hypatia came to head the school of Plato derived from Plotinus. This could just mean she was a late Platonist, basically. It doesn't exclude anything Iamblichian, does it? Maybe uh, Socrates sees if Iamblichus is on his radar at all, he might see him as also a member of the school derived from Plotinus. Nor do the Damascius quotes, which I've omitted from this quote, really tell us that much, except that Damascius had a quasi-lowish opinion of Hypatia, which is okay a priori. He had a low opinion of pretty much everyone except his teacher and himself. But anyway, we cite Watts here as a pretty current and pretty well-argued argument for a non-Yamblichian Hypatia, but one who is part of kind of larger mainstream movements within Platonism, namely the kind of Platonism espoused by the extremely influential Porphyry. Many other scholars have argued along similar lines, or similar enough for our purposes. The, uh, the details get endlessly split, but you get the idea. Now, there are what we as historians of esotericism might call the Yamblichian maximalist readings of the evidence as well. This is a minority reading, but it is on the face of it no crazier than any of the other interpretations of our patchy evidence that we've seen so far. Cameron and Long, in their book Barbarians and Politics at the Court of Arcadius, assess all the relevant evidence about Hypatia for a solid 10 pages or so, and then conclude that, quote, For all their inevitable differences and style of emphasis, Hypatia and Plutarch, as an aside, this is Plutarch the head of the Athenian Academy, whom we just referred to, uh, an enthusiastic supporter of the thought of Iamblichus, back to our quote, Hypatia and Plutarch may, in fact, have taught much the same form of Neoplatonism, emphasizing Iamblichus and the Chaldean oracles. They were also both pagans. And yet, this is surely where the atmosphere of the two schools differed most. Hypatia's paganism has always seemed the strongest argument for assuming that Synesius, too, was a pagan in his younger days. But when he became a bishop, he neither turned against her nor tried to convert her. He continued to treat her with the same awe and affection as before. There were many pagan teachers in the largely Christian cities of the late 4th and early 5th century Greek world. Libanius and Themistius are only the most famous such names. Many more are chronicled in Eunapius's Lives of the Philosophers and Sophists. In Athens, it was different. The school of Plutarch and Proclus and Damascius was to remain one of the last bastions of paganism in the Roman world. The philosophers themselves were strict observers of the ancient cults, and their teaching was often bitterly anti-Christian. Clearly, there was no such aggressively pagan atmosphere in Hypatia's classroom. Indeed, every identifiable student of Hypatia was a Christian. There's no sign that her paganism worried Synesius at all. This may seem an improbable claim when we reflect on her murder at the hands of a Christian mob, but that was many years later in a situation deliberately exacerbated by an unscrupulous patriarch. End of quote. Now, this reference to the unscrupulous patriarch, that would be St. Cyril, pillar of orthodoxy and beloved 
bastion of Christianity to millions. This brings us, in a nice segue, to the subject of esotericism in the 4th and 5th centuries, and what kind of changes it might be undergoing. Staying off the radar, philosophic esotericism, and the noble lie. Now, we know that whatever Hypatia was teaching, she managed to continue teaching it right through the tumultuous bishopric of Theophilus, the man on whose watch the Serapeum was destroyed. Now, the emperor at that time was Theodosius I, a man who really started to put the screws on the polytheists of the empire. Actually, he put the screws even more tightly on the Arian Christians than the polytheists, but the polytheists got their share of flack. And the loads of Christians in this period believed not that Christ was somehow the supreme god of the universe, but that Christ was more along the lines of a traditional Hellenic divine man. He was godlike, he was sent by God to proclaim God's message, and he had special powers because of his holiness, but he wasn't God. All the Christians of the time who believed some version of this theology and this Christology tended to be branded by the Orthodox as Arians, after the rebel Bishop Arius who had refused the Nicene Trinitarian formulation. So, Theodosius, partly because so many of the Goths and other groups causing trouble to the Romans were Arians, partly just based on his own commitment to orthodoxy, as he understood it, and probably also partly because of the influence of the activist bishop Ambrose of Milan. Remember, Milano was the temporary capital of the Western Empire in our period. Ambrose of Milan, who would teach Augustine, whom we shall be discussing in the podcast. Anyway, for all of these reasons, Theodosius took some pretty stringent measures to enforce orthodoxy. Legally, in the year 391, the same year in which the Serapeum was destroyed, Theodosius passed an edict prohibiting sacrifice and closing temples. And the following year, he banned traditional cult activities entirely, even in your own home. You can't even legally sacrifice to your family genius anymore, or your lares or penates, or anything. Now, what did this mean in reality? Obviously, this wasn't a case of armed patrols going house to house searching for altars or anything like that. As we know, openly polytheist members of society continued to do their thing in public for hundreds of years after this. But we should note that these were notably the intellectuals of the Athenian Academy, who seemingly enjoyed a certain cultural prestige that protected them, and also notably the Roman senatorial class the old school list of the old school of the old days of Rome when things didn't suck so much. These people, these senators, still had a lot of prestige. So in practice, you couldn't really touch them for adhering to the old ways. You could maybe scorn them, but you couldn't kind of throw them in jail. But think about the atmosphere engendered by these laws among the common folk. Um, all these encroachments by militant orthodoxy people who don't have uh, prestige to defend them. What if, for example, your neighbor is a Christian, uh, you don't get on with your neighbor, and your neighbor wants your land. Your neighbor can denounce you as a pagan to the authorities. And if they get some testimony that you were doing sacrifices, uh, well, the land is maybe his, and you are maybe out on your ass. So this is just a totally made-up illustration to get at the kind of newfound atmosphere of unease and disquiet this era at the end of the 4th century instilled in traditional people. 
In general, Polytheus will have been feeling really nervous, a feeling perhaps echoed in the writings of Eunapius, who describes what's happening in the Rome of his day as a kind of universal catastrophe, right? So this brings us to the subject of staying off the radar and its relationship with the esoteric. What if you are, say, an adherent to any one of the number of religious and or philosophic practices which Christians at their worst could potentially use as evidence that you were engaged in illegal religious practices. Remember that much of the legal weight brought to bear against traditional practices in this period was gained by branding these practices as being demonic, hence as being illicit ritual actions aimed at hurting people, hence as being the same thing as magia. And magia, as we know, had always been illegal in Rome in the Roman Empire. So this magic connection, I think, is actually very helpful for thinking about this period. But we'll come back to it. Let's think about staying off the radar as a philosopher. When was the last time a Greco-Roman philosopher got into serious trouble for speaking his or her philosophical doctrines in public? If you think about it, we probably need to go all the way back to Socrates of Athens, Plato's teacher, who was executed by the Athenians for introducing new gods apparently, but probably more just for being super annoying in a time when everyone was on edge about losing the Peloponnesian War and uh, scapegoats were being sought. At any rate, since Socrates, we have a few Platonists on record as attributing Plato's notorious esotericism, explaining why Plato wrote in his trademark enigmatic style, which seems to hide what he's really getting at. We have a few voices who attribute this style to the lesson Plato learned from Socrates, namely, don't shout your true teachings in the Agora because it will get you killed. However, much more often, it's the elite silence argument that Platonists allude to. Following Plato himself, you don't cast pearls before swine. You don't expose the holy mysteries to the uninitiated. It's just wrong to do it, right? Most people are never going to be able to attain to the truth. Very few can attain to philosophy. And most people might even, following Plato's Republic and laws, need a little dose of intentional falsehood meant to trick them into following the rules laid out by the philosophers, since they're not going to get the real state of affairs if you explain it to them, so you make up a story to keep them happy. This is the noble lie. Now this, to me, is where the magic angle becomes interesting. If in the whole history of Greece and Rome, with the exception of Socrates, we don't have that much evidence that philosophers were ever persecuted for their teachings. Philosophers got into trouble for this and that, don't get me wrong, but uh, generally, but I've never been able to find an example of a philosopher being persecuted, prosecuted legally, or otherwise, you know, sort of beat up or uh, disenfranchised or oppressed or whatever for just teaching something. Doing magic, yes. Offending against this or that local custom, yeah, that happens occasionally, but generally, not. It seems you can pretty much say what you wanted, up until now, the late 4th century. Now, under Theodosius' empire, and especially if you lived in a place with one of those activist bishops, it started to be the case that you just had to keep your mouth shut about what you really believed. More and more, and at all walks of life, the more you had to watch what you said. Though obviously the more power and prestige you had, the more you were likely to be able to get away with speaking your mind. Let's think about this magic connection for a moment. While philosophers seem to have had 
a good deal in the Greco-Roman world up to this point, there's another group of people who didn't. These would be the magicians. While antiquity never had anything like a witch craze, like as we see in early modern Europe, we do have lots of records of accusations of magical practice, legal cases brought against people accused of doing magic, and so on. In other words, on the one hand, being accused of magic could be a genuine problem, and uh, people had the right to be paranoid about being accused of it. It happened to the Platonist Apuleius, as we know, since we discussed it on the podcast. But there doesn't seem ever to have been a major movement of actively seeking out witches and magi, so things were relatively tranquil. I'm not, I don't think there was a kind of background level of paranoia people had. On the other hand, actual witches and magi, sorcerers, practitioners, assuming they existed, they will have probably existed, but we don't find them in the public record for obvious reasons. <laughs> you know, by definition, what they're doing, they're doing in secret. They will have had to exercise the usual regard for silence, compartmentalization of information. They will have had to rely on their wit and judgment of character so as to avoid getting done for their practices, right? Like anyone who operates in an unofficial economy has to do. They will have had to exercise discretion. Now, traditionally religious people, after Theodosius's edicts, were in an analogous situation they had to exercise increasing discretion in their practices, which, like the Magi of old, were now religio illicita, illegal ritual practices. In a sense, everyone in the empire was now a magus, except the Orthodox Christians. With these two edicts, Theodosius overnight transformed whatever percentage of the population still held to the old ways into criminals. Ouch. Incidentally, estimates vary widely as to the population that still held to the old ways, but Christianity is certainly a growing minority, if not a majority at this stage, the late 4th century. Okay, so it hurts, but is it esotericism? We all understand the need for discretion in various social circumstances. We use it in large ways and small every day. We're always being discreet and, you know, sort of not telling everything to everyone in the same way. But discretion is not the same thing as the esoteric, by our working definition here at the Schwepp. To have the esoteric, you need two things. One, discretion, secrecy, rhetorics of secrecy, the language of hiding and revealing, and so forth. Yes, you need that. But two, also the idea that what you are hiding, or being discreet about, or whatever, is qualitatively higher knowledge. So you can't just be being cagey about something. You have to be being cagey about divine secrets or angelic wisdom or ineffable mysteries of the higher realities or whatever. Thus, the ordinary Roman in the late 4th century who burns a little incense to his family ancestral Lares and Penates, a completely mainstream Roman uh, religious practice going back to times immemorial, this guy now needs to be discreet. But he's not necessarily being esoteric, right? He's just being discreet. The Yamblichan theurge, however, or more generally the worker in a traditionally religious Platonist tradition with any religious content whatsoever, and all late Platonism pretty much has religious content, this person in their discretion is being esoteric. But now we're adding a new element to the mix. They're being esoteric, but they're also maybe saving their skin in this new late antique reality. Or at least as we go forward interpreting evidence, we need to take the whole saving your skin in a very concrete, practical way, side of things into account when we talk about the esoteric. This late antique social situation 
thus adds a new wrinkle to what we study here at the Schwepp. Because up till now, with the exception of mystery cults, whose secrecy was both real and proverbial, esoteric groups like the early Orphics or Pythagoreans, maybe some of the Gnostic groups of late antiquity, whose status as heretical had been increasingly sort of uh, resulting in them being in trouble. Aside from these sorts of groups, most of the esotericism we've been looking at has been largely the elite esotericism of not throwing pearls before swine, often dovetailed with ideas drawn from the mystery cults and reset in philosophical or scientific contexts. So we don't have reason to think that Clement of Alexandria was in danger if people could figure out what his esoteric doctrines were. We don't have reason to think that Philo would have been sort of excommunicated by his Jewish brethren in Alexandria if they could have found out that he perhaps taught a doctrine of reincarnation. He might have got looked at askance or whatever, but no one was going to kill him, we think. Um, this goes for pretty much everyone we've been talking about on the podcast. Um, same with, you know, astrological manuals that claim that, um, you know, this is the secret initiated wisdom that must not be cast before the, the masses. Okay, great, but no one's going to come and burn your house down if uh, someone casts your astrology book before the masses. Now, what about Hypatia? Here's the thing. And now we're about to enter into 100% speculation, so please do not take any of this as history, but rather as, you know, interesting reflections on history. Questions being asked without answers being given. Uh, we can read Hypatia, who prominently taught philosophy openly, a single independent woman philosopher, unmarried, teaching to a huge well-connected group of students, right through the dangerous uh, bishopric of Theophilus and making it part of the way into the even more dangerous bishopric of Cyril, we can read the evidence for this woman in two main ways, it seems to me. One, minimalist. She was just teaching hydraulics and conic sections, and that's about it, so her work was very unlikely to arouse the hostility even of a Theophilus who had, after all, firebrands like Olympus to worry about. On the other hand, second option, and here's where the lover of Western esotericism in me kind of wants this to be the case, Hypatia might have been exercising the usual Platonist philosophic silence, for which that school is known, but now, under pressure from the Christians, exercising it with an increased urgency, because these swine came armed, and if they even caught a glimpse of your pearls, that was it, lynch mob. Now, gentle listener, I'm not going to pronounce on which Hypatia was the real Hypatia, the matter-of-fact mathematician or some variant of the Platonist philosopher of the Plotinian or even the Yamblichian flavor who also happened to be a really good mathematician. All those scholars are right. The evidence is really patchy and the biases in our evidence run really hot in all our sources. In fact, if we want to take the evidence about Hypatia really seriously we'd need to add another Hypatia to the list, namely Hypatia the cunning witch manipulating Alexandrian society in an evil plot against Christianity, which is what we find in John of Nicu's Chronicle that we talked about last time. No one takes that seriously, but, you know, why should we take the other biased uh, witnesses to Hypatia's work necessarily more seriously? I will say this, though. At the beginning of the last episode... I baldly stated that Hypatia was a Platonist philosopher with a specialism in mathematics, and I'm going to stick by that as what I take to be the preponderantly likely scenario based on our evidence. Whether she's into theurgy or not, 
who can say, I don't see any strong reason to think she was, but definitely a Platonist. I Not definitely, but I think quite likely some kind of Platonist. I also think that quite likely with some inner and outer circles of students, though teaching what into her inner circle, I wouldn't want to say. However, this brings us to Synesius. This gentleman poses us an absolutely fascinating I know I say absolutely fascinating a lot on this show, but this guy really is the stuff. An absolutely fascinating case study in the history of Western esotericism. We won't get into Synesius's life and times here, because we can do that much better with expert help in the form of Professor Jay Bregman, with whom we speak in the very next episode. But Synesius fascinates us in a few ways which we have to mention here in the current context. So, prominent aristocrat, student of Hypatia later bishop of a major see in North Africa. So, he's a Christian student of Apatia, no big deal. Ah, but was he always a Christian? Was he a convert to Christianity? Uh, Did he never really convert to Christianity, but just sort of agree to serving as bishop for this reason or that reason, but never really believed any of it? All of these possibilities uh, have been put forward by scholars based on the evidence. But unlike with Hypatia, For Synesius, we have a fair abundance of really good evidence, namely his writings. Because Synesius, as a Christian bishop, uh, wrote a lot, and his writings have been preserved in anthologies of the writings of early church fathers. Now, in his writings, he makes a number of important points clear. He revered Hypatia hugely, calling her mother, sister, teacher, benefactress, and all things, as we talked about last time, or just simply calling her the philosopher. A, a title like, as though, you know, if I refer to the philosopher, you everyone knows who I mean, Hypatia. And speaking of her as his initiator into the holy mysteries of philosophy on numerous occasions in his letters, a good number of which survive, sometimes just as fragments, he tells us of Hypatia's interest in holy geometry. He speaks of the study of astronomy as a stepping stone to initiatory theology or esoteric theology. He says, in short, Lots of things which hint at, but do not reveal, inner levels of teaching to philosophy in general, and which might, in a frustratingly vague way, point directly to Hypatia. Perhaps indicating that once she had taught you astronomy, she might also initiate you into mystical theology. And then you look at Synesius' hymns. Uh, I don't know about you, but if my local bishop quoted the Chaldean oracles way more than he quoted the Christian scriptures the way Synesius does, I might be tempted to rethink this whole Christianity thing. Now, it doesn't necessarily follow that A, Synesius learned the oracles from Hypatia. For one thing, he already studied philosophy earlier at Athens, and who knows where he came across that particular wisdom text. It could have been anywhere, but it could have been Athens, but it might have been with Hypatia, of course. And B, We can't assume that just because he's reading and digging the oracles, that he's into theurgy. But he might have been, of course, right? And the same thing goes for Hypatia. If she's teaching the oracles, she might be into this or that element of the more practical side of the oracles that we discussed back in the podcast when we introduced that fascinating set of texts. Thus, C, if we assume that Synesius, assume, mind you, was taught the Chaldean oracles by Hypatia, and that she was extrapolating some kind of theurgic Platonism from the oracles, or from maybe one of the commentaries on the oracles by people like Porphyry and Iamblichus, we can easily find an esoteric theurgic teaching at the heart of Hypatia's school, and it doesn't take 
any real leap of the imagination. Or we could read Synesius's references to holy geometry and contemplative astronomy as the normal flourishes of an enthusiastic student of these sciences, and uh, reckon that the amazing bounties of wisdom to be found simply in studying holy geometry and astronomy was enough to get Synesius waxing poetic. Uh, we just don't know. So on that open-ended, aporetic, even, note, we are now leaving the glorious Hypatia behind, having hopefully drawn out some interesting reflections on the changing face of the esoteric in late antiquity along the way. Because whether or not Hypatia exercised philosophic silence for the sake of keeping the peace, saving her skin, uh, avoiding getting on the radar of any of these kind of uh, powerful morons that were running her city increasingly, she certainly provides us with a good opportunity for discussing that new kind of element growing in late antique esotericism. Esotericism for safety's sake. But now we must move on to the great Synesius, so much of whose writings survive because, well, they've been read as the writings of a prominent early Orthodox bishop, plus they are uh, gems of Greek literary style and polish in an era when Christian writers were increasingly butchering the Greek language as a, a normal thing. But before we say farewell, we need to consider one letter of Synesius in particular, the notorious letter 105, addressed to his brother, in which our philosopher, Synesius, kind of grudgingly agrees to be made bishop. Uh, and keep in mind, this would be by uh, Theophilus, the bishop of Alexandria, the guy who destroyed the Serapeum. That would be him offering the job of bishop, right? He grudgingly agrees, as long as he's allowed not to believe in orthodoxy, to treat Christianity as essentially a noble lie with which the populace must be fooled, and uh, a bunch of other interesting stuff coming from a bishop. Check this out in Bregman's translation. Quote, It's difficult, if not completely impossible, for opinions to be shaken, which the soul has received as true knowledge through dialectical demonstration. You know that philosophy vigorously opposes those opinions which are generally discussed and adhered to by the majority. Indeed, I will never consent to the belief that the soul comes into being after the body. I will not affirm that the cosmos and all of its parts is going to be destroyed. As for the current belief in the resurrection, I'm far from agreement with the notions of the majority on the subject, for I consider it a holy and ineffable mystery. The philosophic mind, although it perceives truth, consents to the use of of falsehood. For light is to truth, as the eye is to the mind. As enjoyment of an excess of light could hurt the eye, and as darkness is of the greater benefit to those who suffer from ophthalmia, so also I believe that the false is beneficial to the people, and truth is harmful to those who have not the strength to gaze intently upon the clear manifestations of reality. If the laws of our priesthood allow me these reservations, then I can become a priest. One who philosophizes in private, but mythologizes in public. But if anyone says that I too must be moved in that direction, that the priest must hold the same opinions as the common people, then I will reveal my true feelings very quickly. For what has philosophy to do with the people? The truth about divine things is necessarily ineffable, but the multitude has need of another system. Boom! We have now introduced 
two new forms of the esoteric relevant to late antiquity in this episode. The first was the increasing need for circumspection to keep the swine from attacking and destroying you. But we now we are hearing from someone who has been headhunted for the job of swineherd. And he is saying, well, I get that we have to foster these myths. That is the whole orthodox doctrine, seemingly. I get that. And I'm happy to do that mythology thing in public. But don't expect me to believe a word of it. Isn't it interesting that the zealous Theophilus of Alexandria read this and said, fine, you're hired. But that's another discussion. We see here, however, an interesting revival of Plato's idea of the noble lie. But with Christianity as the lie, in fact, if you read the laws, Christianity as single imperial cult actually fits Plato's bill quite well. He might almost have designed it as a method of crowd control. I'm not suggesting that he did at all, but it kind of fits all the criteria that Plato lays out there for a kind of organizing set of myths that can kind of get people to do what the philosophers want. But I want to point out here that Synesius didn't just philosophize in private and mythologize in public, like he said, and this is the rub. He puts a lot of philosophy, much of it esoteric lore familiar from works like the Oracles and the writings of Iamblichus, he puts a lot of that into public writings which all survive in collections of Christian writers. In other words, Synesius's noble lie is actually injecting very specific Platonist esoteric doctrines into Christianity. One might almost suspect, but this is speculation, that Synesius has seen the signs of the times and decided that the only way to save knowledge of the truth in this age of collapse, chaos, and spreading fanaticism is to dress the truth up in Christian clothing so as to allow it to survive into whatever the next age is. One might almost imagine that. And this is not dissimilar from Jay Bregman's take on Synesius that we'll see next time. Now, two things. First of all, whether that was Synesius's intention or not, that is in fact what happened. We're fortunate to possess Synesius's hymns and his work on dreams, which taken together are among the most fascinating documents of late antique esoteric thought, and they are, you know, canonically Christian. I feel a storytime episode or two coming on. But secondly, even if that wasn't Synesius's idea, it might well have been the idea of the author, whoever he was, of the writings which travel under the name of Dionysius, the Areopagite, the Pseudo-Dionysius, these writings inject an almost undiluted shot of straight-up Athenian Academy-style theurgic and metaphysical Platonist ideas straight into the main line of Orthodox Christianity. And we will come back to the theory of the crypto-polytheist Dionysius shortly in the podcast. But before we do that, I think Synesius of Cyrene is so blatantly amazing that we need to cover his life, works, and thought. Join us next time for that with Jay Bregman. And until then, be like the innermost teachings of the initiate, Hypatia, and stay esoteric. Unless she was basically a maths teacher, in which case stay esoteric anyway. Anyway.